Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Karen Hinson, and I'm here. Here? Can I still say that? I'm virtually here with Nathan Ragnon. Yeah. Yeah, now that's true, for sure. Where are you? I'm hours away from you. We've never been further apart recording a podcast. That is true. I'm in Tyler, Texas. Mm, What's in Tyler? You know, my family's in Tyler, so um, that's good. Uh, There's really nothing else. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry if you're from Tyler and listening to Mm, this. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure they're like, what? Yeah. So what are we doing today? Well, we're back this week with Justin Bass talking about his new book, The Bedrock of Christianity. Nice. Yeah, we hope y'all enjoy. We're back this week with Dr. Justin Bass from Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary over in, uh, is it in Amman, Jordan? It's in Amman, Jordan. Sweet. Um, And he's actually in country right now with his wife and kids taking a break and is in the studio with us today. So welcome back, Justin. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Great to be back. So we ended last week talking about just, we kind of set up this epic meeting (laughs) in Jerusalem between Saul and Peter and James and just using our historical imagination, imagine them going to all these different actual places where stuff took place. I mean, and they're not having to guess because they know, (laughs) like it was just a few years ago, it happened right there, you know? Even though Peter was weeping somewhere, you know he knew. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's not that big. If you've been to Jerusalem, it's not that big. Yeah. uh I mean- they knew, and and that's why I think that the the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which yeah. was built at the time of Constantine, it was built on the spot. I think they pretty much knew. They I probably they got it right. right. I think yeah. the sc- scholars agree that that's probably where, yeah. right over this quarry where Jesus was crucified. Yeah, for sure. So anyway, you've got these guys in Jerusalem. Saul's had this massive transformative experience on the road to Damascus, and now he's in Jerusalem with the apostles, with the brother of Jesus. He's talking to them. He's asking questions. Um, what do a lot of scholars, when they look back to that meeting specifically, and they are examining some of these early Christian creeds that come out of like First Corinthians, Philippians, um, there's a, actually a couple of them in First Corinthians, what's one of the ones that they look at and go, hey, this seems to be one of the earliest Christian creeds that probably was formulated a really short period of time after mm-hmm. the actual resurrection. So just unpack that for us. Yeah, it's it's really a fascinating thing. This is a, a fruit of uh, kind of the historical critical scholarship of the last couple hundred years, but just right at about a hundred years ago, scholars started to really find that Paul is quoting these hymns, mm-hmm. hymns about Jesus being God, about him giving us salvation, creeds about, for example, uh, the Lord's Supper, you know, what we hear quoted Every week, if, if your pastor's reading from 1 Corinthians 11, what you're hearing there is something Paul is quoting, something Paul received that he delivered to the Corinthians and that he received earlier than that. And what did he receive? That the Lord, on the night he was betrayed, broke bread and gave thanks and then said, this is my body. And then he took the cup. I mean, that mm-hmm. right there in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, go back and read that and notice that Paul is quoting the actual words of Jesus. You don't realize how unique that is. Paul rarely quotes the direct words of Jesus. So he's giving us not only the account of, of kind of that night before Jesus was crucified, but he's giving us kind of a 
like a window into the early Christian world. Exactly, because that's those exact statements of Jesus there that he made when he took the bread and he took the cup the night before he was crucified. We find that in our Gospels. We find that yeah. in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But Paul is writing Corinthians over a decade at least before maybe the earliest Gospel, Mark. And so Paul is then quoting something that he received about that Lord's Supper. And so that's one of many examples that we get in Paul's letters of these early uh, hymns and traditions. Yeah, and he reworks the Shema and applies it to Jesus. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Heck? Right. So if you don't know what the Shema is, Deuteronomy 6, basically it's like, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that was on the lips of every faithful Jew daily, daily, multiple times a day. And yet Paul takes it and basically applies it to God the Father and the Son. That's right. Which is nuts in 1 yeah. Corinthians 8. So everything was made and created from the Father and from the Son. The son this so crucified crazy. man, Jesus of yeah, Nazareth. Yeah. And just think about how the, that Paul is, again, writing this within 20 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we're talking about 1 Corinthians, we're talking about 20 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. Yeah. So, I mean, this was a recent event. Yeah. I mean, we're not talking about some ancient yeah. hero or... But even know. at the time of writing, 20 years later, I mean, they're having conversations about this in Jerusalem three years later. Oh, yeah. Know, four years later. And we're applying it to Paul right now, but this stuff precedes Paul. I mean, when, when Paul is persecuting people, he's persecuting people who are already making these claims. That's so, right. we have the birth of Christianity going all the way back to the actual Christ event itself. That's why it's absolutely foolish if you ever hear someone online. You'll, again, you'll, you'll hear ridiculous things on Facebook or in YouTube videos. And yeah, things. try to ignore all that. Yeah, <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll hear people say, Paul Paul started Christianity or something. Yeah, that, yeah, that's no. the most foolish thing because yeah. Christianity was already a movement. Yeah. This explosive If he started movement. it, how was he persecuting it? Exactly. He was persecuting <laughs> this movement that was proclaiming yeah. the risen this crucified man who'd risen from the dead. They were already saying that. And the Christians got all the way to Rome and Paul's writing to them. He had never been to Rome. Yeah. So the Christian movement spread far and wide before Paul even was converted, which is incredible. Yeah, it's great. But the primary one, the most significant one, at least when you, when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, is this particular creedal tradition that we find in 1 Corinthians 15. So Paul, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, he's answering questions as, he, as he's doing all throughout that letter of the Corinthians. They had sent people from the church to Paul while he's in Ephesus and they're asking him questions, you know, questions about spiritual gifts, questions about marriage and singleness and divorce and questions about food sacrifice to idols. And they ask him about the resurrection. They're asking about, you know, what's the resurrection body going to be like and Mm -hmm. and things, just different aspects of the resurrection. And so Paul begins that discussion of the resurrection, which he, he pretty much answers in the latter part of chapter 15, but he begins with the foundation for the fact that all believers would rise from the dead. And what is that foundation? What is that bedrock foundation? It's the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Mm. So he opens with this creedal tradition that talks about not only that Jesus rose from the dead, but evidence, proof that he rose from the dead. And this was this creedal tradition that Paul had received sometime within at least five years of Jesus' death. Mm. Some scholars even think it was earlier. It was either right after uh, Paul was converted on the Damascus Road that they gave him this creedal tradition, or it was three years later when he spent that time with Peter and mm-hmm. James. Mm-hmm. Most scholars, and I agree that it probably was that time with Peter and James in Jerusalem when he got this information, because specifically it says in the creed, he appeared to Peter, he appeared to James. Mm-hmm. So it, more, it makes more sense that Paul received that information when he hung out with Peter 
in James. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and so this creedal tradition goes back, we know it goes back to that meeting. That's where Paul got it. But then when was it formulated? Right, right. So it was formulated even earlier than that. And right. so you have scholars that are, there are even more moderate scholars like James Dunn who say, it was probably formulated within months. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking probably after Jesus ascended into heaven and Pentecost happened. Very soon after that, the apostles probably came up with a creedal type memorizable form of what is the bedrock? This is the... What is the gospel? What yeah, do we right, go and proclaim right. and teach all new converts yep. to the faith? Yep. This Paul, is the center of it. Exactly. The foundation, the what you what you say, the bedrock of Christianity. That's right. Yeah. So, we ha- so, so I call this creedal tradition in chapter 15, verses 3 through 8 specifically, these five verses are the bedrock source of Christianity. Mm-hmm. So I didn't mention this time on this episode, but Justin has just released a book called The Bedrock of Christianity, The Unalterable Facts of Jesus's Death and Resurrection. So again, we're going to walk through these now in this creed, but these are things that, again, believers and unbelievers alike are agreeing on the facts of these. Now, the explanation of some of these things obviously vary, but- The interpretation the, of the facts are debated. Right, but the, but facts, the facts are, are there. And so, yeah, totally. And so, this is a from an apologetic standpoint, and not, not just an apologetic standpoint for unbelievers, but for you and your faith, as you consider, like, how reliable is this? Um, I think you'll be encouraged by today. So so start walking us through it, man. When you start in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, what's Paul saying? What's he arguing? Why don't we just, since it's only five verses, I'll just read it. Yep, and great. then we can look at it. So he says in verse 3, uh, chapter 15, for what I received, I passed on to you. So you notice what we were talking about, how he received this at some point in the past. Mm-hmm. And we said, as, as most scholars agree, it was probably around 37 AD. At so that meeting this in Jerusalem. About, yep. about 13, 14 years before he wrote this, he received it when he met with Peter mm-hmm. and James and probably others of the 12. And he passed on to them probably around 50 AD when he planted the church in Corinth. And now he's writing this letter a few years after right. that. And this is a first importance. So this is the most important aspect. This is the essence of the gospel. That, and, th- and this is where the creed begins. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers, probably, and sisters, probably men and women, 500 at one time. And then Paul makes this little side note, which again proves yeah. that he's using this as an apologetic. Yeah, he's totally. using this as an argument because he says, most of whom, most of these 500 are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So yeah. see, it's been about 20 years. Yeah since they saw the risen Jesus and yeah. some of some them, of them have, died, have died. Yeah. But a lot of the 500 but he's like, are he, still he, alive. Hey, he's begging the question. He's like, hey, if you don't believe me, like, go, go ask him. They're go, right over there. Go take a, <laughs> go take a holiday to Jerusalem. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And they did. They People traveled back and forth. So he, yeah. he's saying, go, go talk to someone. Ask him what it was like to see Jesus. Yeah. Then he appeared to James. This would be Jesus' brother. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, he adds this to the creed. He wants to say, the way Jesus appeared to me was the same way he appeared to Peter, the same way he appeared to the 500. This was a resurrection appearance, but I was last. Yeah. And, and this is fascinating because in all of church history, there hasn't been any more after Paul. Paul really is the last one. This was a specific time period over a, a 40-day time period, and then Paul, 
that Jesus appeared to people. We do have people having dreams and visions of Jesus after this. Paul even had that. But the specific resurrected Christ in his bodily form coming down and appearing, Paul was the last of all. Um, And so that's the creed. And so it begins with, I would say the first bedrock fact is that he died. You know, and, and this obviously refers to the crucifixion under Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. I mean, for, for, for Jesus to rise from the dead, he had to have died. And so that's that's what all scholars agree. When when Paul says Christ died, it's referring to this crucifixion, as we said before, in 30 or 33 AD. Yeah. And Romans are really good at executing people. It's not like they're bad at this. <laughs> So you, you'll have some people who are like, well, you didn't really die, you know, uh, uh, like the swoon theory and stuff like that. But in fact, in all the literature that I've found, only one person is said to have survived crucifixion. And it's the historian Josephus. Josephus tells us that, that he was actually on his way back. You know, he's basically on the Roman payroll. He's this uh, Jewish historian who, who got on the Roman payroll because he got in favor with the uh, emperor Vespasian. And on his way back from this battle, he sees three people crucified and he realized they're his friends. Oh, yeah. And he talks to the Romans. They say, okay, let's get them down. They get them down. They get the best nursing and health. Two of them died, one survived. Wow, that's crazy. So even with the best care being yeah. taken down from the cross, they still died. Yeah. And one survived. So that's the only person that's even on, on record. And we have no indication that, that, that the Romans are changing their mind mid-crucifixion oh, while yeah. Jesus is hanging on Zero the cross. I mean, uh, what's relayed to us is that this itinerant preacher, this Jewish rabbi, had gotten sideways with some of the religious leaders and that they'd handed him over to the Romans and that the Romans did what they do really well, and that is actually physically bodily killed him. He was dead. As we talked about before, they the Romans, from their point of view, even as it said above the cross, this the king of the Jews, they looked at him as just another messianic yep. pretender. They yep. looked at him just like they looked at Judas the Galilean or Simon Bar Kokhba mm-hmm. or a lot of these. Uh, the Egyptian guy. Yeah, rebel, people who fought against Rome. Jesus uniquely did not fight against Rome and they knew that, but they looked at him like that, that he had this gathering of followers and he might fight against Rome. And so he's a threat and he needs to be yep. put to death. Made an example of. Yeah. Yeah, this is what we do to the That's king right. of the Jews. Yeah. yeah. If you fight against Rome, we will crucify yeah. you in front of why, everyone. Why do you think it's significant that in the creed, they clarify that he was buried. Yeah, I think one. I think because he, he was buried. Because he was buried. I, yeah, I right. Think, I mean, I think I think the the gospels give us the fuller account. So I think in the creedal tradition that we have here in First Corinthians fifteen, it's fascinating when you when you parallel it to the sermons and acts, for example, or even the ends of all four gospels. You basically have this creed being expounded mm. in the sermons in sermon form and in the gospels in narrative form. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot more information surrounding Jesus's death, the Christ died part, and then you have a lot more information about his burial because it even says he was buried, buried by whom? Well, the gospels tell us he was buried by Joseph of Arimathea in this, mm-hmm. in this uh, new tomb that no one had ever been laid before. And the women saw where he was buried and they discovered it empty. On yep, the, the on help the, of Nicodemus. And the fact that it says, and he was raised on the third day is an interesting thing because that might be a reference to the fact that the women did discover it on the third day, that that on Sunday morning, the third day is when it was discovered. So it may be a historical reference point. So I think when this creedal tradition was was memorized, I think the story, much as we have it in the Gospels, was probably in the background of all these statements. But another aspect is buried is proof that he was dead. Yeah. So he died according to the scriptures, and the proof, he was buried. 
he was raised according to the scriptures, the proof, look at all these people who saw him. Yep. So I think the way it's, it's formulated, I think is to show it as a proof. So the burial wasn't as much an evidence, especially in this early creed, it wasn't as much an evidence, even in the sermons, it's not really mentioned as an evidence. It's more mentioned as just proof that he actually did die. Like with the resurrection, the evidence is the appearances. How do we know he rose from the dead? Look at all these people he appeared to. We can summon witnesses. We can we can bring forward all these witnesses who say he appeared to them. I think it's also interesting, too, that in my interaction with uh, skeptics and non-believers who question this, sometimes the assertion is made, hey, criminals were a lot of times just thrown into a mass grave. And, you know, how do you know that his specific body was raised from the dead and stuff like that? We see evidence that some criminals are buried, but most of the time there is this, right. you know, just mass grave. And I think that's why it's significant that Joseph of Arimathea comes with Nicodemus and they're like, hey, we want his body. That's right. Because he's placed in a known tomb. Mm-hmm. Like people know where it is. Yeah. And there's only one body there. So right. it's easier to deny it if he is in a mass grave or how do you really know which one he is or anything like that? No, he's placed in a known tomb and he was physically there and then he was physically not there. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about that. It's interesting. We, we, we do know uh, it's true that just your regular everyday criminal was usually just thrown into some yeah, just toss common into grave, yeah. you know, eaten by animals. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, that did happen and we do have evidence for that. But, the situation with Jews, we do also have testimony from Philo of Alexandria, from Josephus, and we even have the ossuary of a guy named Yohanan mm-hmm. that we discovered in 1968. We have evidence that some Jews were buried, mm-hmm. especially on the uh, a high holy day like Passover. So they would bury, maybe get permission for burial. And we have this testimony even from Philo of Alexandria that some family would come and have their uh, Jewish you know, family member that was crucified buried in, in an ossuary. And this this looks like what happened to uh, a guy named Yohanan, where we have now the first physical evidence discovered in 1968 of an actual crucifixion. So we have his bones that were discovered in an ossuary, like a little box that's where they put the bones yeah. in. They like, they like let the flesh rot. Exactly. And, and then, then once the it's bones. gone, they put the bones in this box. Exactly. And, an in the, and in the box also had nails. So oh, it had, it had seven cool. inch nails and one of the nails. Not nine inch nails? Yeah, they're not nine. That's what I was saying. They got the, the, Trent Reznor got it all wrong. Should have been called seven inch nails. Yeah, right. But but the the one of the nails is straight through the ankle bone of Johannan. And and it's curved and so it never got out. So it's still there. And so you can you can see Johannan's ankle bone. I got a picture of it in my book, but you can go see it at the Jerusalem Museum. They have the ossuary and they have the the ankle bone with That's the nail cool, still yeah, in it. Yeah. So it's it's just proof that they did use nails, and they did actually crucify people. Mm-hmm. And th- this was a Jew that was actually buried afterwards uh, that was given some sort of proper burial. And so uh, all the evidence suggests from our Gospels, all four Gospels agree that Jesus had this proper burial by Joseph Arimathea. And I think in the Creed, like I said, you don't have the full account, but you do have at least the statement of burial, that he, wa- he wasn't treated like, like a common criminal who just got thrown out somewhere. He did receive a, a proper burial, is what Paul means by burial, most likely. So the creed starts with that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scripture. All right, we'll get back to that for our sins part in a minute, but that he was buried. And then where does it go from there? Yeah. So if you got to separate out, what's the bedrock fact that everyone agrees on? It's that Christ was crucified, like I said, under Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. 
that he died for our sins, obviously. Unbelievers don't agree with that. Yeah, 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 that he fulfilled yeah. scripture. Unbelievers don't agree with that. And sadly, even the burial is still debated, and it's because we don't have that full account like we have in the Gospels in these early accounts yep. in Paul. And so when it comes to the burial, the empty tomb, I think there's overwhelming evidence that it's true and, and historical, and we have very good reason to believe it. But it is debated enough that it's not considered a bedrock fact. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about just the bedrock facts that reaches that high bar of you know no one disputes, yep. we're, we're dealing with the death. And then we're dealing with, uh, the next one is the statement, he was raised on the third day. Now what's bedrock about that is, and I have a whole chapter on this, is the claim, as we, t- we talked about this in the previous uh, podcast, the unique claim that this Messiah has risen from the dead. As I said, when you talk about like the history of ideas, when does a new idea originate in history? When, when, who was the first person to say this or that? Well, this is the first time these early followers of Jesus who claimed that he rose from the dead, that's the first time that's ever been claimed. Mm. No one expected the Messiah to rise from the dead, and no one said this after them. This is a unique claim of the early Christians. And so you have to answer, where did they get that idea? It's not like there's this underlying narrative that we can point to that goes, see, they were trying to fulfill this narrative or this story or whatever. It was, in fact, that's one of the, the strengths of the apologetic around this is that not only was it not that, but it was the exact opposite of that. So it's like, not only is that narrative of a crucified Messiah not there, the actual narrative is a conquering. So it's the exact opposite, which causes problems for people. I mean, one of the strongest apologetics I think there is, is the fact that these claims came out of a people group whose narrative was a conquering Messiah. How do you explain that? Like, that is... That begs so many questions. Like, I, like I'm, I'm 41 years old, been thinking about this for a while. I've never heard any kind of satisfactory explanation that would explain it any other way than That's just right. the actual event happening. In addition to that is not only the expectation of the Messiah, but also the expectation of resurrection. So the Jews did believe in resurrection, yep. but they believed in resurrection at the end of the yeah, world. Day of so the Lord so there like would be... Job a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked at the end of the world when the kingdom of God would come. That's what Martha says to Jesus in John 11. Exactly. I know my brother's going to rise again in the last day. In the last day, he'll rise again. Oh, and then he says, I am the resurrection. The resurrection (laughs) and the life. Yes! Friggin' mic drop, man. I love it. Right. And that mainly comes from Daniel. So the key passage that really the Jews pointed back to for this belief in the resurrection. I think there are other passages, but the main one is Daniel. Daniel chapter 12, where Daniel prophesies that many who sleep in the dust will rise, mm-hmm. some to everlasting shame and contempt, and others will shine like the stars forever and ever. Yeah. And so Jews, at the time of Jesus, not all, like Sadducees, didn't really have this belief, but most Jews did believe that there would be some sort of resurrection, bodily resurrection at the end of the world. We see this again in the Maccabee story, uh, the Maccabees, uh, there were these seven sons who yeah. were being, you know, you know, tortured. With that and, mother who's yeah, like, and the mother's die like a man. Yeah, the, the mother's <laughs> telling them to man up. That's awesome, and man. one of the boys puts out his arms and he says, "Cut these off because I'll receive them back in the resurrection." Mm, yeah. I mean, that's bodily, physical resurrection, and that's yeah. what that's what a, a lot of the Jews were expecting, and so they were expecting resurrection at the end of the world, but they were not expecting the Messiah to rise from the dead mm, the, in, mm. in the Daniel way. And right. then everyone else to rise from the dead at the end of the world. Right. That's exactly what we have in 1 Corinthians 15, which is not Paul's idea. This is an idea that came from the earliest followers of Jesus. And so again, where do you get this idea of the Messiah 
rising again in the middle of history and then history continuing like normal and then that Daniel resurrection coming again at the end of the world. That's what the early Christians believed. And so you have to ask, where did that idea come come from? Uh, I think it makes more sense that Jesus rose from the dead against all expectation and created this new belief for them that they, they had no idea. And really clarified what the scriptures actually were teaching because they, they just weren't reading the scriptures correctly. Shocker. <laughs> <laughs> That's why that, that should keep us humble to just well, know. Especially, that, yeah, when we talk about end times. For yeah. Sure. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> Those are two of the bedrock. I have, I have mainly four when it comes to the, I have many more bedrock facts, but four that specifically do with the resurrection. So, so you've got so far, you've got, he died. His death. Everybody his agrees crucifixion. that there was an actual physical man named Jesus who died. And then very soon after that in Jerusalem, they started to claim that he that rose he from alive. the dead. Right. And, and they said resurrection. See, that's what's so key about this. It's this language of resurrection. Yeah. That, G, that this crucified man, it's not that he continues in our in our memories and he's in our hearts and we and Yeah, we, no, we not like him, a spiritual resurrection. Or, or, or that he ascended into heaven and he's like the martyrs in heaven. Disembodied. This is what they said about the Maccabean martyrs, you know, that they, oh, but they're still okay in heaven. But they didn't say they rose from the dead. They did not say the Maccabean martyrs after they were martyred rose from the dead. They didn't say that about Enoch. They didn't say that about Elijah. They didn't say that about any of these people. So Jesus is uniquely said to begin the resurrection prophesied in Daniel. Mm-hmm. Why is that? That's the bedrock fact the claim of the resurrection. So then the third would be Paul's actual proof, and that's the appearances. So again, the bedrock fact here is not that all scholars agree that Jesus actually rose from the dead and appeared to these people, Mm -hmm. but all scholars, like Bart Ehrman that we mentioned, the most skeptical scholars, atheist, agnostic, Jewish, they all agree that these people believed Jesus appeared to them. Yep. That's the key. Yep. We talked about Paul. Not just Paul, Peter, Mary Magdalene, James, uh, James, John, the 12, yep. they believed that Jesus, who had been crucified, appeared to them in glory. And they believed it to such an extent that they were willing to give their lives. For and like 475 other people at the exactly. same time. The 500 <laughs> the account five. is amazing. That's so crazy, man, because you, you might be in the world of psychology or psychoanalysis or something, and you're looking at this and you're going, well, you know, people can like kind of get together and come up with a story. And it's like, eh, no, nah, there's really no such thing as like collective hallucination where everybody is, you know, like I've never heard of anybody that shows up and be like, hey, what's up, Justin, man? Wasn't that an interesting dream we had last night? That's right. You know, like nobody says that because that's ludicrous. That's right. And Dale Allison, who's this excellent New Testament scholar, he wrote a book called Resurrecting Jesus. And in that book, he surveys like all the vast research on hallucinations Mm. and he basically the fruit of his research shows how absolutely unique jesus's resurrection is and this is one of the things that you don't find groups larger than like eight or so in these claims of hallucination Mm. experiences with jesus you have the 12 you have the 500 i mean this is unparalleled and again the enemy aspect you don't have in the hallucination stories you don't have someone conjure up an enemy that they have appearing to them and so these are things that are absolutely unique with jesus so if jesus's uh, resurrection appearances were hallucinations they're unlike anything we have on record which rightly so should if you are skeptical of this like that should give you pause that we have a valid and historically reliable report from really multiple sources about the fact that Jesus appeared to not just one or three or 12, yeah. but 500 at the same time. And I like to compare this to other religions too, because like what's the claim Joseph Smith made about the angel Moroni appearing to him, to uh, Jesus and God the Father? Where are eyewitnesses? Yeah. 
Joseph yeah. Smith. Yeah. So again, let's look it's at his Joseph vision Smith. In, that he had in this hat. And let's let's <laughs> and let's look at Joseph Smith. For yeah. one, again, people outside the Mormon Church do not consider him credible. Yeah. Do not consider him a good man. All the evidence suggests he was a con man, mm-hmm. uh, proclaimed that way, uh, you know, during his lifetime. Dude, like, ran for president, tried to start a new country, ran his own currency. He, he, he had multiple <laughs> wives. Crazy, man. One of his wives was as young as 14 years old. Even the more, even on the LDS website, on their own website, they admit that Joseph Smith had over 40 wives, and one of them was as young as 14. Show me that with John the Baptist, yeah, with Jesus, right, right. with Paul. No, mm-hmm. they did. They did not do such things. Yeah, these dudes aren't like creepy dudes. Th- these are tr- <laughs> these are people who inspire even those who don't believe in them. Yeah, right. But with Joseph Smith, okay, so we have one eyewitness for his miraculous claim, and not a trustworthy character. You could do this with Islam. Muhammad is the only one who claims to the, the angel Gabriel, Gabriel yeah. appeared to him. One eyewitness. This is not multiple individuals, men and women, uh, an enemy. 500 at once, 12 at once. So I want to compare and show that what we have here is absolutely unique. In all of ancient literature, you don't have anything like this where you have this list of all these different eyewitness claims yeah. of this supernatural claim. It's, it's incredible. So Jesus is, what he's doing is very public. He's not trying to hide. It's not in a corner. No, 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 no. Out in the open for everybody to see, which is the way his ministry was. I mean, the claims that he's making are not in a closet. The the works that he's doing are are not being hidden from people. Um, he tells his disciples, "Hey, y'all, kind of keep this on the DL," and they go tell everybody. You That's know? right. <laughs> like a, but what I love about it is that he—I mean—he still leaves enough for faith because—and this is where I, one of my favorite apologists and, and uh, Christian uh, theologians, we Blaise Pascal, and he talks about how God gives us just enough evidence to believe and just enough to reject. And so if you really, if your heart is oriented to reject God, you could always find some reason here to reject. But if your heart is oriented to seek, then you can also There's have plenty of solid grounding yep. and good reasons. Yep. And if you follow the evidence where it leads, I think you, you end up saying, like Thomas, my Lord and my God. That seems to be the way God works. All the evidence of scripture and history, sometimes you'll hear skeptics. I've, I've heard you know people I've debated things. Why didn't Jesus appear to me now? Why didn't he show himself now. And again, see, it's clear God's not interested in that kind of convincing. Yeah, yeah. God's interested in humility. He's interested in you humbling your heart and getting on your knees and trusting in him. And so what he gave to Thomas is different than what he's, as he said to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and, yeah, and still believe. So, yep. so we, I like what, you know, you love John Lennox too. You know, John Lennox, the, the mathematician from Oxford, he has a great line. He says, you know, Christianity is not leaping into the dark. It's mm-hmm. stepping into the light, into the light yeah. based on good evidence. Yeah, that, right. that, that, that's really what I find. I, I find that I'm standing on very good ground for what I believe. But ultimately, I still have faith. Ultimately, I still. Yeah, but it's not like uh, some of the other dominant worldviews, like any sort of secular worldview, including scientism and others. It's not like they're not exercising faith. Right. They are, for sure. And what, frankly, there's so much evidence here there's a part of it that is, for whatever reason, there's a denial of the evidence in order to justify unbelief, which is really sad. And I would say in most cases, at least that I've learned about, people I've interacted with and people I've read who are unbelievers, usually they're rejecting for other reasons other than intellectual. That's right. I yeah. think there are some that have rejected intellectually, like Nietzsche. I think Friedrich Nietzsche, for example, the great atheist uh, philosopher, he definitely understood Christianity and he rejected it. So a lot of people just fully don't understand. They don't know the evidence. They don't know what Christianity totally. actually believes and they reject a, a false caricature of it 
or they reject because they want to live a moral certain way. Yeah, there's a handful of different things that come to mind here. One is people who really do understand it but reject it. Then there's people who don't understand it at all or they understand like a really reductionistic caricature of it. And then there's people who maybe sort of understand it but just want to do their own thing. And I've found, you know, again, I don't want to put everybody in a certain category because I don't know enough to be able to do that. But I can tell you in my own experience in interacting with people, a lot of the people who understand Christianity and still reject it do so on grounds that are much more emotional and experiential. In other words, there's a lot of like really deep woundedness in their life and they struggle to come to grips with the evidence because there is such an emotional check in their spirit based on experiences they've had in the past, whether it's with attachment figures or whatever. So that's right. Okay. So we've got Jesus died. Everybody agrees with that. Everybody agrees that the early Christians claimed that he rose from the dead. And we also have that all the early Christians claimed to believe to have seen Jesus. He appeared to them. Yes. Those are, those are the three. What's the fourth one. And then the fourth one, isn't necessarily the creed, but of course could not happen without the creed. So it's more the, the, the effects of it. Yeah, it's the effect of all this, which is this movement. So this Jesus movement, what I call in the chapter, the rise of the Nazarenes, this Jesus movement that exploded out of Jerusalem, the very place where Jesus was crucified and buried. It went on, of course, to dominate not just the Roman Empire, but dominated North Africa, went off into what we call Russia today and all around the surrounding areas of Russia, that the Eastern Christianity went that way. Uh, the West went through Europe, to ultimately the British Empire, America, and now it's kind of making its way all the way around again as uh, Christianity is most dominant. The movement now is most dominant in places like Africa and Latin America and uh, China and South Korea. And so the question is, the bedrock fact is clear, this movement that's gone on to dominate the world. It's the, you know, Christianity is the largest religion in the world to this day. But you have to explain what caused this movement. Yep. What caused the right? You know, I say the Big Bang had a banger. So, <laughs> you know, what is the cause for the singularity? If, if the singularity here is the, the Christian movement, what's the cause? What caused the rise of this Christian movement? Again, you can't say Paul. <laughs> the Christian movement began before Paul. All right. Mm -hmm. So, so how do you explain the rise of this Christian movement? You have to go back to those earliest days to the people like Mary Magdalene, to the people like Peter. And originally they had to have, for some reason, convinced themselves that this crucified man, against all expectation, yeah. against all their, their cultural theology, against everything. all that they've yeah. ever known, yeah. he rose from the dead. Yeah. And many of them probably saw how horrible he looked. I can't imagine what he looked like when he came down from that cross. And so I can't imagine what would he convince them. <laughs> yes, what would convince them yeah. that he rose from the dead other than him rising from the dead, appearing to these people, and, and just like Matthew 28 says, he will be with them till the very end of the age. So I spent time in this chapter talking about kind of if Jesus did rise from the dead, what would we expect over the last 2,000 years? I mean, we're unique now. We, I mean, we're, we have 2,000 years hindsight. What would we expect for his movement? Would we expect his movement to just disintegrate and die out? Just fizzle out, yeah. If he rose from the dead? Of course not. And what happened? It conquered it went on to conquer the Roman Empire. And would we expect it to just stay in one portion of the earth like other religions like Jainism or Sikhism has always stayed in India? I mean, Hinduism has always stayed in India. You know, Hinduism has been around supposedly over 3,000 years, but for some reason, 
the gods of Hinduism have not been able to cross the borders of India? Why can't they reach people? If Krishna is true, why can't he reach across and go to Latin America? Why can't he go to Africa? Why is it that it's only stayed there? I think good evidence is that it's of men. I think a lot of these, all of these religions, I think we have good evidence that they're of men. But when it comes to Christianity, I think we have uniquely the one world religion, truly world religion. It's going across the world and it's capturing the hearts and minds of people from every different race, ethnicity, tongue, tribe. The gospel is going to go to all nations, just like Jesus said. And, yeah. and I think when you look at the two, last 2,000 years, the evidence suggests that we have a living Christ on our hands. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we have a living Christ that is still not just dominating through his movement, but also is dominating through individuals. You know? So we're talking about uh, the facts, the, the bedrock facts. But I think when you talk about just the experience of it for literally billions of people down through the last 2,000 years, the experience of not just that we have a risen Christ or risen Jesus on our hands, we have a risen Jesus in us. In, in us, <laughs> like above us, around, around us, us, like in him we live us. and move and have our being. Like it all, He is Lord and Caesar is not. Yeah, totally. But we have this witness of the Holy Spirit yes. who dwells in us and Jesus through his spirit in us to bring us to the Father to bring us deeper into the divine life. And I would say, like, even though that's subjective, it counts. And it fits with that kind of question. I, the question I give is, what would we expect? Yeah, Again, yeah. I mean, if, if Jesus is alive, we would expect him to be changing the lives of people, not just in America, not just in Europe, but of all nations. And that's exactly what we do find. And we don't find that with the other religions. No, that's what's no. fascinating. You don't find, I, one of the questions I like to bring up is, I've actually talked to people in Jordan and people from Iraq, people from Syria, people from Egypt that have had visions of Jesus, mm -hmm. that have had dreams of Jesus, and then converted to Christianity. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask, why is it that Christians never have dreams of Krishna? Mm -hmm. Why is it that Christians never have dreams of these other religious gods? Yeah. Or Thor, you know? Yeah. Maybe Christians do dream of Thor. That's just because they, <laughs> they watch too many movies. But not many really, movies. really, that's a, they're dreaming but, of Chris Hemsworth. That's yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, the Christians are not bowing down to Thor after a dream of Thor. I mean, that, all the evidence suggests, because no one is worshiping Thor anymore, that Thor was a figment of humanity's imagination. He, he did not continue. I mean, he had his time, and then he just disappeared from the face of the earth. So what we do find is people are having dreams in other religions of Jesus and transforming, whether it's Hinduism, whether it's Islam, go down the list. You're, you're finding that Jesus is transforming people from all different faiths. You don't have the same thing from the other religions. Which, sociologically, if all religions were just made up, that's what you'd expect. But if one of them is true, you'd expect all of them to be, in different ways, being led to that one. Yep. And so I think the evidence, again, suggests overwhelmingly that Christ is alive and transformed lives. And, and that he is the explanatory ultimate of all other fundamental questions of every other religion. In other words, the way Lewis said it was, what is vaguely hinted at in all other religions becomes historicized yes. in the incarnation. What is true about other religions, if you chase that down, ultimately it culminates in the person of Jesus. I came across this uh, amazing book by a guy named Lin Yutang. He wrote a book called From Pagan to Christian. Hmm. Everybody should look him up. He was this brilliant intellectual of the latter part of the 20th century. And he is from, I believe he's from China, but he himself considered himself a Confucianist most of his life. And he 
was a professor and intellect writing books about Confucianism, about Taoism, about uh, Buddhism. And he ended up shocking the intellectual world because he out of the blue just became a Christian. And he wrote a book called From Pagan to Christian. And here's the best quote of that. And I want you to hear this because this captures what you're saying. This is amazing. He says, I have dwelt in the mansion of Confucian humanism and climbed the peaks of Mount Tao and beheld its glories and have had glimpses of the dissolving mist of Buddhism hanging over a terrifying void. And only after doing so have I ascended the young fra of Christian belief and reached the world of sunlight above the clouds. <laughs> and, you, and I know many are saying, what is young fra? I said yeah, that too. Yeah. I had to look it up. But if you, if you type in J-U-N-G-F-R-A-U, Type that in and look it up. You'll see what Young Fra is. It's the basically the Alps. Mm-hmm. It's these beautiful mountains mm-hmm. of Nepal that he's saying basically, okay, there were some good things in these religions, but when I learned what Christianity was teaching, when I learned about Christ, it was going like above the it clouds. It allowed him to summit. Into yep. the sunlight. Yep. I mean, it's just yep. that right there. You can, find, cool. yeah. you can find people saying that about Christianity from every religion or atheism or worldview. You can't find that about these other books. Yeah, almost like uh, every tribe, tongue, and nation. Exactly. <laughs> Revelation. I don't know. Yeah, Revelation I don't know. It, it says that true. somewhere, yeah. So you've written this book, The Bedrock of Christianity, and you're dealing with these four foundational facts. The death of Jesus, the claim that he was alive from the dead, the claim that a bunch of people saw him, and then the unquestionable fact of the movement of Christianity, which is still very much alive today. So as you're kind of putting all this together, what's the so what of this? What's the, what conclusions are you coming to, to offer both to the church and to the skeptic? I tell a story in the, in the book, this great story about, um, I'm sure everybody listening knows Tim Keller, and he tells a story about how when he got thyroid cancer, he was stuck in the hospital for a while and he had time to read and uh, he reads anyways, but he read the 700 and so page book of N.T. Wright, The Resurrection of the Son of God, which I think actually, other than my book, is the best book on the resurrection. Uh, but um, <laughs> but it really is the it's best. Awesome. It's, it's the, I think that is probably the best book yeah, written it, on the resurrection. It's really good, yeah. Um, and so Tim Keller tells that story and he says, I read that book and even though I was a pastor and, you know, I'd written all about this. I believe in the resurrection. He said that two or three floors dropped in his heart on his depth of belief and understanding of the resurrection. And I love that way of saying it because that's what's happened to me. I mean, the resurrection has been a key aspect of, of my conversion story going back to college when I went to SMU. The evidence for the resurrection has been there from the very beginning. And so this is like a 20 year journey for me, but, but just having those floors keep going down and you don't know how deep it's going to go. This is my hope and goal for everyone, because I think that's the key. I think if you're bedrock and those floors go down as deep as they can go on Jesus's death and resurrection, then nothing will phase you. You will be, as Paul says, immovable. If your bedrock is the resurrection, then nothing in this, you know, no coronavirus, no uh, any kind of uh, evil that comes to your house you will be set because you stand on that firm ground of the resurrection. Another thing is I'm fascinated as I listen to some of the greatest thinkers that are speaking today, that are writing today, the best-selling books coming out of America and Europe. I find that this crisis of meaning has hit kind of a height, the crisis of meaning and purpose 
Uh, where do we find forgiveness and redemption? Where do we find hope? I mean, these are these some of these key aspects that I keep hearing from these people who are not believers, but they're kind of, as one said it, they're still dreaming Christian dreams. You know, they wish it were true, and, and they don't even really know what they want in some instances, but some of them have a little bit of understanding of Christianity, and they're like, wow, yeah, I kind of wish that were true. And, and without Christianity, I don't have hope. Mm. I don't have forgiveness. I don't have redemption. I don't have meaning and purpose. And in the resurrection, we have all those things. Yeah. We have all those things to the nth degree, to, to more than we can ever think or imagine. And so I want that for not just believers, but for the skeptic, for the unbelievers to know that you have everything you could ever dream and hope for if Christianity were true, if Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, if he didn't rise from the dead, truly nothing matters. And I, I really look at it that way. I mean, I think, I think it's ultimately Jesus or nothing. I mean, these other religions, I've studied them enough to know that they are definitely of men. They are definitely false. And so it's either atheism, it's either basically we don't know what's going on, or Jesus rose from the dead and we know exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. And we stand on that firm ground and we have full purpose, full meaning, infinite forgiveness, infinite redemption, and we have incredible hope mm-hmm. for the present and the future. And so I think those are some some things I'd want people to walk away with on the so what side of whether Jesus rose from the dead. That's good, man. One of my favorite gospel stories is John 7. You know, he's at the last and greatest day of the feast of booths, tabernacles. It says that he stood up above the crowd and uh, the Greek word is kradzo. You know, he, he, he raised out. his voice. Cried out. <laughs> in, in, Anyone my, is in, thirsty. in my language, he said, he shouted, <laughs> he <Yes>. was yelling. <laughs> right. He's in this, uh, in the temple grounds where are thousands of people fitting in there on this, on this last and greatest day, you know, and, and here's this, this, itinerant Jewish rabbi who stands above the crowds and he, and he just cries out in a loud voice, is anybody thirsty? Mm, yes. That's such a great question, you know, because the obvious answer for all of us is what? Yes. Yes. Everybody is. Everybody's thirsty. Even if they don't know what they're thirsty for. They're still, their mouth is parched and he follows it by saying, is anybody thirsty? Then let him come to me come and, to drink. Me and drink. Yeah. Yeah. And then out of him will flow rivers of living water. That's, yeah. And so what's, what's crazy to get back to the Keller thing is as those floors drop, it's not like you ever get to the bottom. No. You know? I think there is a bottom. It's so, that's so I think, crazy, And I think that's man. what the kingdom will be. The kingdom yeah. will be never getting to the bottom. Yeah. No, just constantly learning more, constantly moving deeper into an understanding of God, constantly moving deeper into his actual life. And his love that he has for us. As First so, Corinthians 15 ends, God will be all in all. Yeah. This permeation to where we become fully human. We're fully alive right. in the presence of God and the love of God. And so he's given us really good evidence. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Enough to believe. Exactly. And that's what, that's what Paul said to the philosophers in Athens. He has furnished proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. This is the proof that he's given. And so we as Christians need to go out and share and challenge the unbelieving world with this proof. It's good, man. Well, I'm grateful for your ministry, man, for what you've done, for writing this book. You guys go, for you, man. go pick it up on Amazon or wherever you buy books, The Bedrock of Christianity by Justin Bass. Thanks for being my guest, brother. I Thank appreciate you, brother. it. It's awesome. Thanks for listening to the Equipping Podcast. If you like what you heard, then go on iTunes or Google Play or whatever you're listening to this on. And please take a few minutes to leave us a rating that actually helps us in some way that I don't understand. 
<laughs> but would encourage you to do that. And uh, if you have any questions or just want to talk to us, then shoot us an email at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. Peace. Bye.